So Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is the word of our Lord. This is a passage in which Paul is addressing a people that we were introduced to in the previous chapter. You can go there, chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, We see there that there is a body of people in the church uh, who call themselves a Jew, who rely on the law, and who boast in God, Romans 2, 17. And I said last week that these people are a pretty, pretty sharp minority within the church at Rome. Paul Uh, ever the pastoral heart wants to address everyone in the church. And the Jewish population of the church, that is, uh, people who are ethnically uh, Jews, but who profess faith in Jesus Christ, that that Jewish ethnicity in the life of the church is actually a minority in Rome. But uh, a minority of the minority would be the kind of people addressed in 217. Uh, The kind of people who are really Jewish legalists, They're Jews for whatever reason. It's likely ethnic, but it could be other reasons. They call themselves Jews, but they're they're boastful about their compliance with God's law. And they judge others out of that boastfulness. And so it's a a minority of a minority, but Paul in this passage is going to spend eight verses chastising them. Really, in many ways, he is disciplining them. He's talked about the experience of being a Jew. He himself, as we know, is a Jew. But Paul's not the kind of Jew in verse 17 of chapter 2. Call yourself a Jew, rely on the law, boast in God. This This is not what it means to be a Jew, according to Paul. According to Paul, the the law is not a thing to be relied upon for salvation. And God doesn't exist so that we might be able to boast in him. Uh, whatever that might mean in 2.17. The law, it's meant to show the Jew his or her need for God's mercy and then to guide that redeemed person in their life with God. The the law, it's the the character of God working uh, beautifully uh, with his mercy to save. You see, the law shows off God's mercy to save, and it shows the recipient how to express thanks and gratitude for that salvation. To Paul, the law's good. It ought not be treated according to 217. 
And yet there are Jews in the church who think that their obedience to the law can actually save them. They boast before God, they judge others, and their heart is wrong. What's the proof for that? Well, Paul corrects them at the very end of chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That's exactly what they're proclaiming. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so... To Paul, the law is valuable, but it can't save us. So boasting about our obedience to the law, uh, judging others uh, sanctimoniously about their inability to keep up with the law are not appropriate behaviors for a Christian. That's actually a misusing the law, and it misunderstands God's character. You know, There's a sense in which, you know, we all know what it means to use the wrong tool for the job, right? There's a right tool for the job, but a lot of us, uh, we just reach for the nearest tool, and by and large, we can make the wrong tool get the job done. But that's not the problem that these uh, Jews in the church at Rome are struggling with. They're using actually the right tool, but they're using the right tool for the job incorrectly, in the wrong way. You see, God's law does actually draw us to himself, by, but not by giving us a rule book in which we have to master. That's not how the law was intended to work. It's a rule book and you master it, and when you master it, I'll be affectionate towards you. If you look down in chapter 3 at verse 20, you'll see where Paul is, is leading us. He says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. And then he goes on, he says that the law works by doing this. The the law works by giving us knowledge of sin. And so when we see our sin, we're to fall before God's holy, sinless character. And while the law doesn't promise God's mercy, it prepares us to receive God's mercy. And in this way, God's giving of the law is actually an act of his his grace and his mercy that shows us uh, our need for an atoning sacrifice. That's what the law is supposed to do. And so uh, this uh, minority of a minority in the church at Rome, Paul is addressing. And he's, uh, he's saying to them what the law is intended to do. And he's, in verse, in chapter 3, he is anticipating their pushback. And so we see a lot of question marks in this passage. He's actually asking the questions for them. But it's important for us to notice that in 3, 1 through 8, Paul is addressing those those specific kinds of Jews at the end of chapter 2. But as he chastises them, as he disciplines them, uh, as he uh, offers uh, their own questions, their, ch- their own challenges, and, and he defends himself, as he chastises them, there's something that we who might not be a part of that group can learn. Paul's disciplining a subset of the congregation, and it's a legalistic subset of the congregation. But as he is doing so, there is something for all of us as Christians to to notice and acknowledge. 
And so anyone who would be here this morning and say, I am not like this, and so chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, I can, I can gloss over. That's not really intended for me. What Paul is doing is he's disciplining them in such a way that we can watch that discipline and we can learn. Our own hearts can be pricked. And I'll, and I'll argue at the end of the sermon, our own hearts ought to be pricked. And so the mature Christian can look at Paul's chastisement of these individuals and be humbled, be reminded of who they are as sinners in need of God's converting and sustaining grace. There's a reminder of how we are to live as Christians in the life of the church, how we are to example the love that Christ has for us in the entire world. Paul's chastising a subset, but doing it in such a way that as Christians, look, we need to learn something from this. And that's what I'll argue for at the very uh, end of the sermon. Uh, the, the theme of the passage is this. Uh, even though the law does not, in fact, cannot guarantee compliance of the law, right? The, the law can't guarantee that we can fulfill all of its requirements on our own efforts. Even though the law doesn't do that, the law can and does proclaim the holy character of the lawgiver. The law should tell us something about the giver of the law. Now, just real quickly, in terms of how I'm progressing uh, through this passage, you know, there's a lot of question marks in the Greek of this text. Uh, there's uh, six question marks, and they're kind of uh, scattered all over, and translators uh, really work hard to try and uh, uh, either remove a question mark and just turn uh, two phrases into a single phrase, uh, or to be more explicit by providing uh, more question marks, but there's a lot of question marks uh, in this passage. But here's how uh, I'm arranging the text for us this morning. In the first uh, two verses, uh, those questions really have to do with one thing. They serve to reveal the heart of the questioner. In verses 1 and 2, the questions really uh, serve to reveal the heart of the questioner. And then making our way through the passage, uh, the remainder of the questions uh, are a couple of challenges. One's a challenge to who God is, and one is a challenge to who, uh, um, who mankind is. And so uh, in verse, uh, verses uh, 3, uh, all the way to the end of the passage, we really have all these questions making two challenges, a challenge of who God is and a challenge of who man is. So overarching challenge, revealing the heart of the, of the questioner, and then two specific challenges. Verses one and two first, the challenge that reveals the heart. Paul says, what advantage has the Jew? What's the special bonus of being a Jew? What's the perk? If not to boast about myself or to judge others, what then is the point? And then, then Paul immediately goes to this question, what is the value of circumcision? Now, both advantage and value in verse one, are new words in Romans. I mean, the word value shows up in 2 verse 25, but it's a different word. It's almost like Paul is uh, pulling out all of these words uh, that mean um, a, a perk or benefit or a super added uh, bonus. And so we have these two, uh, two questions. Uh, they they want to know what's so, what's so special about being a Jew, and they want to know um, uh, wh what do they get for their effort of being circumcised. You know, it's, it's remarkable, these two questions, the advantage of being a Jew, the value of circumcision, 
You know, these, these two questions are really about their position in the church, their position in the society of believers. These are the kind of people who, at night, they rank themselves. These are uh, the kind of people who uh, love to be superior to others. It's a bit of an aside. Have you ever considered uh, how superiority and covetousness are really the same sin? Paul talks an awful lot about covetousness in Romans chapter 7. Uh, we know what covetousness is. It's, it's wanting something that someone else has. We, we remind ourselves that that's, that's wicked. I, sh- I shouldn't be that way. Stop wanting what someone else has. Well, that's covetousness. But all, right on the other side of that, or close at the heels of covetousness, is superiority. If covetousness uh, says that I want what he has, superiority says, I have what he wants. Have you ever thought of that? I have something that you either either don't want because you don't know, or you don't want, but you should want, but I have something that you want. That's superiority. Superiority and covetousness are really close together. And and really what Paul is addressing is he's addressing the, the heart that wants to rank itself more superior than the hearts of others around him or her. And then then Paul answers in this way. It's like he recognizes that about them. What's the value of being a Jew? Well, what do I get out of the effort of circumcision? And Paul answers with something that's so obvious, but also so overlooked and so underappreciated. He says in verse 2, much in every way, it's a Greek expression for just, just confidence, much in every way. I love that. Paul doesn't back down. Paul goes with their questions. He says, much in every way. He's unequivocal. And he says, the chief reason is here. Here is what is so uh, valuable about your circumcision. Here is the advantage uh, to being a Jew. He says, you were entrusted with the oracles of God. Uh, an oracle, um, I've always found oracle to be a funny uh, translation, and I think that we read it, uh, or the translators translate this, uh, the Greek word is logion, they translate it as oracle, because there's really no other word. Uh, uh, literally, uh, what uh, oracle means is it's a, it's a plural, it's a collection of things, it's a collection of words, it's a lot of words put together. That's what uh, oracle means. And Paul says, much in every way, you are entrusted with the oracles of God. When Paul says that uh, it's a collection of words, I think he's, uh, he's being very, very deliberate. It, not just the Ten Commandments. You might argue that in the middle of chapter 2, that's really part of this debate. It's, uh, it's the Ten Commandments. Or, or maybe it's the, uh, uh, the middle of Genesis, Genesis uh, uh, 15 and 17. But... Paul is saying it's, it's not just the Ten Commandments, it's the ta- entire collected words of God. The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the, the writings, the poetic works of the Bible, Psalms and Prophets, wi- uh, wisdom literature, the, pro- the prophets, the Old Testament, but, but Paul seems to be uh, uh, implying the New Testament as well. This is the advantage of being a Jew. This is the value of circumcision. And it's so remarkable because it's not something uh, that you actually have generated on your own. It's nothing that you've done. 
It's God speaking to you. The King James Version, by the way, translates this very nicely. The King, the King, uh, King James Version uh, says in verse 2, uh, much in every way, chiefly unto them that were committed the oracles of God. And I like that word committed. God has uh, committed his own oracles to his own people. So what does this remind the boastful Jew of Rome? What does this remind them of? Well, there, I think there's three things when Paul says that the, that the chief thing, the great thing about what it means to be a Jew is that you have been entrusted with the oracles of God. It says three things. The first thing it says is, is that God's speaking is actually what defines them. In verse 4, notice what Paul says. Paul is going to actually quote Scripture. Why is he going to quote Scripture? Because that Scripture tells them who they are, and that Scripture tells me who I am. And so when he says that uh, the chief reason is that you are entrusted with the oracles of God, he's saying God speaking is actually, well, that's what defines who God is. And it's, who, it's what defines who God tells us we are. When we look down in chapter 3 at verse 10, Paul is going to cite Psalm 14. What is he doing? He's using God's word to tell us who God is and tell us who we are as people. But, but not only that, this is why the, the oracles of God are so precious. They tell us who God is. They tell us who we are. Uh, but also, uh, God's oracles uh, tell us that God's speaking to us is actually what begins our life with him. God's speaking to us is what begins our life with him. When was it that the people were entrusted with God's word? When was that? Well, surely when Moses writes the word and it's placed in the Ark of the Covenant. No, that's wrong. They were entrusted with, with God's word in the Garden of Eden. God spoke to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were actually responsible for that word. God not only spoke them into creation, but he spoke, he spoke them into a relationship with himself. It's God who actually begins our life with him. He's the author of our relationship with him. God speaking defines him, it defines us, and God speaking is what begins our relationship with him. And then finally this, God speaking is actually worth preserving. The Bible Paul is hinting at is worthy of protection and preservation. He says that we are, or that the Jews are entrusted with God's word. Their job is actually to take care of something that doesn't belong to them. To protect it, to preserve it, to broadcast it. Notice that these descriptions of why it is so important uh, to be a Jew and why circumcision is of such value, all of these things have to do with God's authority. God speaks to them and, and tells them who he is and speaks to them and tells them who they are. Uh, God speaks to them and enters into a relationship with them. God speaks to them and uh, commands that they would preserve that speaking for the entire world. It's a very beautiful economic answer to their question. And it ought to put everything to rest. But Paul knows that it doesn't and it won't. And he goes on. 
Verses 1 and 2 are kind of an overarching uh, uh, set of questions that really just show what these people are after. They're really after uh, anything that's going to elevate themselves and denigrate God. And that's clear in the next section. Verses 3 and 4, I, I think these questions, I think these questions in 3 and 4 uh, are a, a challenge to who God is. It begins this way, what if some were unfaithful? What if some of those Jews were unfaithful? You know, really, the, the question is odd. And scholars debate whether or not these would be real questions. Would they argue their case exactly like this? And uh, probably not, but they're, they're real sentiments. And what if some Jews were un, unfaithful? The question has to do with uh, God's plan of distinguishing a people for himself. God has looked at all of the peoples of the world, and uh, he's uh, gathered a special people from that world. Uh, but that special gathering of people becomes unspecial for this reason. Some of them, they actually stray. They go elsewhere. Well, if the plan of God was to herd a flock of sheep, and then some of those sheep, they prove to be faithless, meaning uh, some of these sheep, they, they actually escape the gathering power of God. Doesn't that mean that the entire enterprise of God is a failure. It's just one or two or three or four faithless sheep can actually prove that God is faithless because his plan, his plan to a shepherd a flock will have actually, well, it's failed. What if some of the Jews were unfaithful? I want this argument to make a little bit more sense to you over time if you just think about it. Because you see what, you're, what they're doing is this. They're actually turning God's law against God. They know this. Paul has already been clear in chapter 2 that if uh, these uh, people fail in one part of the law, they have failed in all of the law. That's the latter half of chapter 2, isn't it? If they failed in one part of the law, they failed in all of the law. But if God only gathers a percentage of the Jews... Well, has he failed then in his entire plan? Do you see the logic? If the law does this to me, I fail in one part, fail at all, then it needs to do this to God. Clever, isn't it? But Paul, he's onto them. He knows what they're doing. And he says that the faithlessness of a Jew does not prove that God's plan is a failure. Instead, it proves that the Jew, that particular Jew, is uh, not obedient to that plan. The plan of bringing a people to himself is God's plan of bringing an undeserving people who prove their faithlessness all the time. In fact, God called a faithless people to, themselves, to himself and their life is actually to be a life that acknowledges their faithlessness. The people that God gathered, Moses was very clear, are not a people who deserved to be gathered. They're a gathering of sinners. Undeserving people, faithless people at their very being. And yet, God has gathered them. 
And when they ungather themselves, they don't prove that God was wrong. They prove that God was right. He has called to himself an undeserving people. And they prove their undeservingness as they leave the careful protection of God. Now, Paul's going to produce an example. But not just any example. This is uh, the equivalent of Paul uh, going for the jugular, as it were. You may not see this in the example, but the example is from Psalm 51. Do you know what Psalm 51 is about? How good is your memory? We looked at it earlier in the service. It's a Psalm of David. And it's David doing what? He's acknowledging that he does not deserve to be gathered by God. He doesn't deserve God's mercy and affection and attention and power to gather. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is King David. And he goes on, and this is what Paul quotes. There's a lot of allusions in the New Testament to Psalm 51, but this is the only direct quote here in verse 4 of chapter 3. And Paul or, uh, Paul quotes this portion. Uh, David begins against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then David's words, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David knows that he lives his life under the wrath of God, under the thumb of God, under the judgment of God. That is where David lives his life. A man who, if he doesn't have mercy, has condemnation. You see, faithlessness before God is the norm. God calls a people to himself not because they are faithful. He calls a people to himself in order to show his great grace. Now, you can challenge his character. But what will you do with his character to be merciful? You can challenge his character that God would gather a people and yet not all of those people would be with him. But if you're going to challenge his character, will you also challenge his mercy, his desire to receive the sinner, to keep close to himself a man as wicked as King David? You might actually hate God for a number of reasons. God uh, has permitted uh, sickness and death in this world. God has permitted injustice in this world. You can see it all around you. God has permitted uh, evidence of horrible wickedness in this world. Etc., etc. And you may use those as reasons to uh, hate uh, God. But how, you, how will you justify this hatred for his boundless mercy to receive the sinner? How will you justify this hatred for his punishment of all wicked doers in the last day? He will punish all the wickedness that you notice. And how will you justify your hatred for his restoration of all things in the end of, in the, end of the days? Now, you may hate God for a number of reasons, but Paul takes them in Scripture right at the place where King David finds his life, the acknowledgement of his sin, his need for grace, 
and receiving that grace as God uh, casts all of his iniquities aside and paints him with the atoning blood of Jesus. Now, so the first uh, set of questions then seem to be questions uh, in which these uh, Jews of 2.17 are challenging who God is. God has made a mistake. He is faithless. But now they're going to challenge who man is. They're going to, in essence, uh, redefine what it means to be a human being. This is in verses 5 through 8. It's a collection of questions here. They, They seem to come rapid fire. But Paul is uh, saying that uh, if these, uh, uh, he's saying to them that these boastful Jews, uh, you cannot topple God. He has said that, three and four. And he's saying now that they cannot elevate self. You cannot topple God. Find him lacking, judging him. Nor can you elevate self. That's what five through eight are about. And this is probably not a... uh, A serious defense, I don't think. If you look at 5 through 8, Paul really doesn't spend a great deal of time defending his point. I think he defends the the first uh, challenge, the challenge to God himself. I think he defends that uh, with uh, certainly uh, more uh, activity and energy than he defends the challenge of who man is. But uh, basically their challenge uh, is uh, somewhat of a two-pronged approach. Uh, They seem to be saying the same thing, but in slightly different ways, these uh, accusers of God. Uh, First, in uh, in verses 5 through 6, they seem to be saying that that my unrighteousness, my bad behavior, it actually performs a good function for God. Okay, just just think about that. My unrighteousness, my bad behavior, it actually performs a a, a function for God. Here's Here's a very pragmatic argument. Look, my my behaving badly actually commends God's righteousness. That's the the word that's used here, that my unrighteousness commends God's righteousness. It makes God's righteousness look great. Uh, You know, when you're uh, uh, restoring a a, a project and you have uh, some of your nails are bent or some of your screws are bent, you're looking for the straight ones, you just just line them up and and the bent ones really stand out. You can see that gentle curve in a nail because you've you've laid it against some straight ones. And, And really, that's their argument. Their argument is my misshapen form actually emphasizes God's straight form. And that's something, right? And then they, they continue that, you know, my unrighteousness um, actually performs a good function, but so too my falseness, verses 7 and 8. My, my bad words, my lying actually performs a good function as well. This is turning out to be a pretty good argument. My bad behavior performs a good function, and my bad words perform a a good function. So you see, my untruthful words, they actually um, cause God's words to abound, to increase. So I ought to go out and uh, behave poorly because it commends God's righteousness, and I ought to speak falsity because that increases God's good words. I wonder if verse 8 is just kind of a summary of this entire, well, mess. Let's do evil for the sake of good. Now, this sounds so ridiculous, but sin is ridiculous. And I want you to know that we should be very clear that this argument is meant to be personal. You see, Paul knows that they're digging at him. 
It's a very personal argument because Paul has been known, his reputation has gone far and wide as being someone who is an unrighteous Jew, someone who behaves badly. He doesn't follow the requirements of the law. And not only that, Paul has been talked about as someone who presents bad words of Judaism. He's not speaking true Judaism. He's instead speaking lies because he is speaking against, they would say, Moses. So Paul knows that this is personal. They're saying, look, Paul, you're the, unrighteousness, uh, you're the unrighteous one, and you are the liar. He knows it's personal. However, Paul is going to make himself even more vulnerable. And he's going to say this. This is his defense. Paul is going to say, well, Rather than defending his own righteousness, rather than defending his own preaching ministry, Paul just makes sure that they know that God is a God who judges. In verse 6, he judges the entire world. In verse 8, he condemns all who disobey his law. In fact, he mentions slander. Slander is a breaking of the ninth commandment. Why do you think Paul would do that? It's almost as if it's, it's, it's a full stop in the argument. He just says, God judges. You see, to really argue for those who call themselves Jews, who rely on the law, who boast in God, 2.17, in order to uh, really argue for yourself if you're that person, someone who relies on works before God, you really need to do two things. You ready for this? If you want to argue that you are saved by your morals, saved by your ethical prowess, you need to do a couple of things. You need to, first of all, excuse your own faithlessness. That's the first thing that you need to do. Anything that is remotely faithless in your life, you need to excuse it. Uh, any of your small misdeeds, the tiny things that uh, rise to the attention of your sleeping mind, those things you just need to excuse, right? Your intentions trump those things. They were small misdeeds, hardly even matter. So you, you need to do that. You need to excuse your own faithlessness. But you also need to do this. If you are going to work your way to salvation, you have to not only excuse your own faithlessness, but you have to denigrate the judging power of God. You have to soften his judgment. Yes, he judges, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't judge absolutely everything. He's looking for big picture. And it's remarkable to me how practical Paul's defense is. Because what he's saying to these uh, Jews who rely upon the law for salvation, he says that they need the kind of God who they can call, do, call God, but permits them to do whatever they want. They want to have some form of worship so that they can feel superior to others, but they don't want to be bound in any way to him. Just mull on that for a moment. They want to be able to use the name of God, but they want to understand that God is someone who, who permits them to do almost whatever they want. 
And they want to have some kind of uh, worship or ethics of some sort. But the real importance of those ethics is not so that they could appease a God who judges, but rather that they can elevate their own sense of superiority around others. And in order to do that, uh, God uh, actually uh, has to lighten his judgment and they themselves can't be bound to him in any official capacity. It's very, it's very waffly. They want God but they want self. And God uh, really becomes a relic, a symbol. He gratifies all human wishes, and yet he can't name sin, and he can't judge sin. What is this today? Who are these people today? Who wants to use the name of God, uh, but have no impact on their thought, speech, and behavior at all? Who wants to uh, name God, but at the same time uh, define him in such a way that no one is really going to be judged by him? The portals of heaven, as it were, are portals that, that I have a little knob on. I can control that gate. Who are those people? Well, we want to uh, point out those are legalists. Those are moralists in our midst. I think it's uh, appropriate to make fun of liberal Protestantism. Much of Protestantism in America is, is like this, a Christianity with no Christ, with no God, with no sin, with no judgment. We want to call, uh, call those people out to be sure. But I want to do something else in addition. I want us to look inside of ourselves. I want us to detect times when we have been like that. When we have uh, come in contact with a person who is just too filthy for our attention, clearly, clearly there's no space in heaven for them. And we avoid them. We stay away from them. We judge them from afar. Or it could be that we have a narrowing door of heaven in our own hearts in which uh, the people who get in are only people who are, who are like me in some way have the same tastes as I have, educate their children in the same way that I do, have my same habits of life. And so that door gets narrow and people become, uh, begin to fall in your estimation. Little theologians, here's what I was taking you to. It's an illustration from none other than John Newton, the hymn writer and preacher. And he tells us an illustration about travelers who, uh, as they are traveling, they fall into a deep pit. And no one's ever going to get out of that pit. And here they are, co-travelers having fallen inside. And one of those travelers then cries out for uh, mercy, uh, for rescue. And sure enough, someone reaches down and grabs them and elevates them uh, out of the pit. And John Newton says this, now having been uh, drawn out of that pit, what are they to do now? Are they, uh, as it were, to stand on the perimeter of the pit and chide those others? Claw your way out. You can do it. Look at me. And then uh, what about uh, going uh, around uh, the world and meeting others? 
are they to then boast about their own climbing abilities, their ability to get out of that pit in their distant past? And John Newton says that they're to have a certain demeanor about them, having been rescued uh, by uh, grace. And uh, what, what Newton says about them is that they are a people to actually proclaim the gospel more loudly. They're to look at those people who are trapped in the pit. And they're not to boast about how they themselves got out of the pit. They're to proclaim the gospel. They're to remind them that they can't get out of the pit. They must be rescued. And there is a rescuer at hand. So Owen, or Newton says that a man truly illuminated is not going to despise others. He's going to love them all the more. He's not going to jump into that pit. But he's going to preach the gospel down into that pit. All I did was acknowledge my weakness. All I did was acknowledged my emptiness. All I did is wept. He'll preach the gospel downward, but he'll also preach the gospel uh, horizontally as he goes out into the world and he tells people about that experience of the pit. And he's not going to boast about his own works and efforts. He's going to treat people with grace because he himself is a man who would still be in that pit were it not for God's grace. And so he's going to preach the gospel to them. He's not going to demand their conformity. He's going to demand their repentance, their trust. What a lovely illustration that is. And if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, you're that person. You yourself have been plucked out of that pit. You did nothing to get out. Ought that command some attention in your mind and in your heart? as you live with others? Yes, there are many who hate God. They scream and yell at him. They challenge who he is. They redefine who they are. They point their fist into the air. They trumpet curses to this God. What will you do? They're all around you. Well, you know what you'll do. That was you. And you'll preach the gospel. You'll tell them how God's grace dragged you out of that pit. And his grace will drag you out of that pit as well. That's what you'll do. Paul chastises a minority in the congregation in Rome. We are challenged to stand by the side and watch him challenge them. But brothers and sisters, take it to heart. Take it to heart. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do thank you for your great grace. And we acknowledge that we want to call you the faithless one. And we acknowledge that we want to be the ones who make all the measurements so that we're taller than everyone else. But you, Heavenly Father, you have told us who you are, and you have told us who we are. You have told us that we need your great character of mercy and love and affection. And you have told us that there is nothing that we can do to earn that love and mercy and affection. We thank you for drawing us from the pit.
for your own namesake. Amen.